This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Ayana Kennedy. I'm a second year dual degree student with Wharton MBA and Penn Graduate School of Education and also a teaching assistant for Professor Stephanie Curry's course, Leading Diversity in Organizations. I would like to welcome you to the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Our moderator today, Professor Stephanie Creary, is an identity and diversity scholar and assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. She is also the creator and host of both the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series and the Leading Diversity at Work podcast series sponsored by Knowledge at Wharton. Joining Professor Creary today, our Dean Erica James, who assumed the role of Dean of the Wharton School in July of 2020, and Mr. Corey Anthony, who is currently the Senior Vice President, Chief Diversity and Development Officer at AT&T. Dean James is a seasoned leader in higher education, as well as an award-winning scholar, educator, and thought leader on the topics of crisis leadership and workplace diversity. Dean James has advised and consulted with numerous companies on their leadership and diversity strategies and has been recognized as one of the top 10 women of power in education by Black Enterprise and as one of the Power 100 by Ebony. Prior to assuming his current role of Chief Diversity Officer in May 2017, Mr. Anthony led AT&T's Emerging Services and Operations Transformation Organization and oversaw the company's global transformation to IP voice, security, and cloud services. In his current role, Mr. Anthony is responsible for leading the company's efforts to leverage its leadership in diversity and inclusion to drive innovation, growth, and equity. To date, AT&T has received numerous awards and accolades for its diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Please join me in welcoming Professor Stephanie Creary, Dean Erica James, and Mr. Corey Anthony. Thank you, Ayana, and thank you all for being here today. Thank you, Dean James and Corey, for joining us. We're so grateful to have you here to discuss your approaches that you've been taking in your own practice to inclusive leadership, uh, during these current times. Uh, so here's my quick notes for the audience. Uh, you will have the chance to um, submit your questions, which you can do at any point. We'll be taking those toward the end of our time together. So please enter your questions in the Q&A function throughout our conversation. Um, we're gonna go ahead and monitor those questions and try to incorporate as many as possible. Some I might incorporate as we're talking and some I'll try to incorporate towards the end. So you won't be able to see the questions as they are being, um, as they'll be entered, but nevertheless, we are able to see them on our end. Uh, so with that, my first question is for Dean James. Dean James, September 28th marked your first 90 days as Dean of the Wharton School, and we're so happy to, to have you here and so excited for your leadership. Yet in your 90-day reflection that you originally posted to LinkedIn that's since been published in numerous sources, including Wharton Magazine, you discussed four areas that have helped you to be successful thus far. And so I'll just name them for everybody in case they didn't have a chance to read your article. So the first is embrace the concept of swift trust. The second is ask questions to inform your priorities. 
The third is find people who energize you and seek out time with them. And the fourth is wag the tail, i.e. lead the leaders. Okay, so now you're four and a half months into this deanship. Are you still focusing on these areas? Have they evolved? Are you now at number 10? And if so, can you provide some of what you're doing regularly in some of these areas and, and anything that you're adding to the list? Well, first of all, thank you, Stephanie, for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. And I'm thrilled to be able to engage in dialogue with you and uh, Corey Anthony. So to your, to your question, uh, Something that is just fundamental to what I believe is necessary for any leader for any leader is to build trust within the organization. And I think it goes both ways. So it goes, uh, I need to be a trustworthy person so that people will be open and willing and receptive to my leadership. And I place a lot of value on people that have demonstrated trustworthy behaviors uh, in the roles that they play within the organization. Now, coming into a new organization, being an employee who's just recently been onboarded in the midst of a context in which I can't really create the same kind of relationship that one would if we were in a person environment, meaning I don't see the full body. I can't read the, the body language. I don't know the political uh, backing and context that exists in the world that I'm stepping into. And so, I had to find ways to still uh, meet with people and learn about them enough to form some level of trust that I know that they will sort of execute the ideas that we needed to do as, uh, as a school. So that one is still important, but as time elapses, you learn more, you have more information. And so it's not just a risk that I'm trusting people, but I, I actually am starting to build data uh, to know whether or not people are trustworthy, and if I'm demonstrating trustworthiness myself. So, so the SWIFT trust is now slowly emerging into more tangible elements of trust, if you will. With respect to some of the others, I also am, I mean, I'm in higher education for a reason. I'm naturally curious. I ask a lot of questions. But I have found that that is an effective leadership strategy because you can't always mandate what you want to happen. But I have found that if you ask enough of the right questions, people will engage in a conversation that leads them down a path to form really great ideas for the organization or for the university. And their ideas may or may not be exactly what I have chosen, but I'm, I asked questions to guide them to a, a future end that I think we all would want to buy into. And so that notion of asking questions continued to be uh, a part of how I lead both at the Wharton School and in, in other situations. I clearly think surrounding yourself by energizers remains to be important, especially in these dark days where it's hard, you're feeling isolated, uh, picking out and identifying the people who, who feed you and who feed your soul in some way. Um, I mean, that's important all of the time, particularly in the midst of this kind of pandemic. And then I think it's our responsibility to lead leaders. Uh, and I say that regardless of the title that people hold within the organization, I think our students are leaders. And as long as they have a general idea of the direction that you want to go, the vision, the why that you, you want to go in that direction, they will step up in really powerful ways. And again, it may not be exactly as I had wanted, but they will do so in a way that works for them and that ultimately achieves the same outcomes. They're all still relevant, yes. 
Okay, great. So what I, um, I think personally admired a lot when you came on board, and, and you've alluded to this as you talked about being curious, is um, in leadership and, and as new leaders enter corporate organizations, they often speak of going on a listening tour um, with the understanding that they're just yeah. trying to understand what's on the ground, how are people feeling, and what are their expectations. And I was really happy that I know you actually started this li listening tour before your first day because I was included with a group of faculty who got to express to you how we were feeling about the issues we were talking about here today, how we were feeling about COVID and certainly how we were feeling about the murder of George Floyd and all of the movement to um, speak to um, end systemic racism. So I truly appreciated that you were listening before you were actually on the payroll, <laughs> I would say. Um, Corey, I want to turn to you and, and welcome so much. Uh, thank you for, for joining us and welcome to Wharton. We're so happy to have you here. Um, so you've been in your current role for three years, but um, for those who might have um, maybe missed your bio, I think it's important to note that uh, you were actually in the business. You had, had a long career as an executive doing work for which your formal title, diversity was not formally in your title. Um, and so I want to sort of think about that as we're also thinking about your current role. So many of our students um, do want to be change agents with respect to diversity and inclusion in these other jobs that are not necessarily diversity in the title. Interestingly enough, the three years that I've been here at Wharton, we've seen an increasing number of students who actually want to take on diversity roles. So maybe if you can speak to both of them in your comments, that would be great. Okay. So in three years in this role, and you can also think about your time at AT&T more broadly, um, have any of these steps that um, Dean James has been talking about that she's used um, in order to be an inclusive leader, have you used these or, or what approaches have you taken in general to inclusive leadership as you've become more familiar with this role and certainly carried over into your other roles at AT&T? At cool, would, would love to. So first, let me start by saying thank you, Professor Creary and, and Dean James for allowing me to have some time or to spend with your students. And um, so Carla, I had an opportunity to spend some time with a few of the students a little earlier. And um, they ask a lot of really difficult questions, a lot of really difficult questions, uh, which was fun. What they weren't expecting, though, is I asked them a lot of difficult questions as well, which gets me to your your question, right? You know, how do I align with the issues that Dean James um, just identified? So I'd say a couple of, couple of them I'll focus on. All of them make sense to me, and all of them um, we teach here at AT&T, and candidly, we expect of uh, our leaders here at AT&T. But there are a couple of them I'll draw attention to. One is this, this notion of trust, uh, swift trust. I, and I love the way you um, characterize it, um, the word swift trust. Um, clearly, trust is, is essential, right? I mean, it's just an essential component of inclusive leadership. You cannot be an inclusive leader without it. There's the, the trust that the organization places in you as the leader. There's the trust that you as the leader have to work to cultivate with all your key stakeholders. And then this is the one we probably don't talk about as much. And it's the trust that you have in yourself, in your own abilities and capabilities as a leader. Because when you don't have that, your team will see it. It becomes way, it becomes way more evident to them than you probably even realize. So trust is very, very important. I love this notion of asking questions. And I love it from this perspective. One, I'm a Socratic learner, so it's part of my personal style. It's just how I learn. 
But I think it's effective as a leader when you ask questions for all of the reasons Dean James said. And I would add to that, it's a good way for you to get to a place where you are using your personal power as opposed to your positional power. And you're always going to be more effective as a leader when you're leaning on your personal power more so than you are your position power. And so when you ask those questions, it's a way of pulling the team in, right? It's a way of engaging the team. So not only are you learning from it, but you're getting that added benefit as well. So yeah, I love all of them, Dean James, but those two, we spent a lot of time um, at AT&T um, teaching that and instilling that in, in our leaders as well. Stephanie, before you ask your next question, can I just pick up on the notion of trust really quickly? Because it's a term that we we use a lot, but I don't think we really are thoughtful into what it it really means. And and I'll just share that I think about trust in three in three different ways, all of which matter in organizations. One is competence, right? Can you be trusted that you know how to do the work that you've been hired to do? So what is your level of competence-based trust? Another is communication-based trust, meaning do people trust you to be transparent, to be candid, to not share information that should not be shared, et cetera? So how do they experience you with respect to communicating uh, in in a trustworthy manner? And then the first, the, the last one is really you know, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's sort of contractual-based trust. And and what what I mean by that is, do you follow up and follow through so that people can rely on you behaviorally? And all three of them matter. And when you're giving feedback, so we're talking about leadership, when you're giving feedback to people and you say, and you, you determine whether they're trustworthy or not, really breaking it down into, well, what elements are aspects of trustworthiness, um, are they you know, form, performing well and, and where are they not? And I think giving more specific feedback about what we mean around trust is really critical as a, as a leader. So I'm sorry to interject, but I felt that was an important point. Absolutely, you can inject, interject any point that you would like, I think that's really important. And, and our students love frameworks, and so you have three Cs. And so that will be very memorable. Trust on that one, competence, communication, and contractual. Uh, Corey, let me ask you a, another question here, and, and, and certainly I want to, um, we, we've definitely been talking broadly about inclusive leadership, and, and I want to contextualize this um, to the current times, and so we're in the midst of a, a terrible crisis, and um, Corey, I don't know how it is where you are, but um, in, in Philadelphia, we are entering into uh, some restrictions that had previously been been lifted. I talked to a student today who's in Chicago and she says the city's back on lockdown there. So I think so many people were hopeful once the fall came that we'd be in a very different place. And now these COVID cases are skyrocketing. I have colleagues in France who are completely on lockdown. So it's 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 a really terrible um, set of events that we're facing. And obviously I'm just talking about one crisis to start. We can talk about the others. Um, I want to talk about COVID first. Um, And so it has just been incredibly disruptive and unpredictable um, for some time. Um, I don't even want to say since March because this pandemic started, as we know, well before then. And and some of us were privy to that information and some of us weren't. Um, But I want to understand how has AT&T adapted 
to these current changes that COVID has entailed? And specifically, um, uh, what, what uh, policies or practices have you put in place for employees and things about work from home? And then we can talk a little bit about the future in just a moment. Absolutely. Um, so so I, I would start by saying this. At AT&T, um, our response to the pandemic is rooted really in one of our core values, and that's to make a difference. Um, and so when we were first started dealing with this, and it was the timing, while obviously there's never a good time for a pandemic, um, but it was interesting uh, because we had literally just rolled out what our new culture is and values. And so it all sort of happened at the same time. And so we were communi you know, communicating to the organization that one of these key values is make a difference and make a difference in our communities and the people around us. So everything we did in response to COVID was sort of rooted in. First thing we did was ensure that our employees were safe because you may or may not realize this, but at AT&T, we literally have thousands of employees that are deemed essential employees. So while about half of our workforce is now working virtually, the other half are considered frontline essential employees or are still in workplaces. They're still in AT&T physical workplaces. They're still at customer premises performing work. They're still in um, enterprise or business premises performing work, maintaining the network, et cetera. So first we have to ensure that they were safe, right? That they could perform that work safely. And then we had to give really clear direction to the other half of the employees on how we were going to be able to continue to perform the work virtually. How are we, you know, with minimal impact? So that was a, it was a heavy lift for us. What I would, I characterize it as really um, accelerating a lot of the work that we already had underway, but the pandemic just accelerated, right? In terms of how do we perform virtually, uh, more innovative solutions about how we team across geography because you know as AT&T we have employees in 63 countries around around the globe and so we we had some practice right we had developed some of that muscle uh, but we had to accelerate developing a lot more of that muscle and then we also said hey what can we do to help to help ease this burden on our customers as well so we introduced some some things in the marketplace, um, you know, to try and help with the financial burden, as an example, on how you consume broadband, right? Lifting some of the caps on our broadband products, putting some really low cost um, offers in the market uh, for folks that are in disadvantaged communities, et cetera, where they can literally get broadband solutions for as low as, you know, $10 a month, that kind of thing. So we just said, hey, how do we partner? right with our customers how do we partner with some of our key stakeholders externally to help on that front and then just keep feeding factual information to our employees all of our decisions about when is it safe to re-enter a workplace how do you safely work in a call center or contact center how do you safely work out in the field all of those decisions professor were made using scientific data and information is really objective data. And then we, we named a czar, if you will, one of our really talented young executives to lead this work for the entire business. Because we have to figure out how do I have a person on a production set over at Warner Media that's working on you know the next season of one of our shows to how do we um, have a person you know work safely who's climbing uh, a pole and hanging the next strand of fiber that's going to connect you all um, to your information services. 
And so I've been pleased with what we've done so far. I really have been. Yeah, it's definitely not the um, situation that I think any of us could have ever imagined we would face in our lifetime. And I think certainly to see how business leaders are trying to respond, I, I hadn't thought about the essential worker element with respect to AT&T. Um, and so certainly I think more thought on that for us all is, 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 really, is really important. Um, because again, you think about we're all now connecting through technology, that's somebody's job to make sure that there's viability in the system, right? And, and AT&T is one of those entities that is making sure that we can actually stay connected and work from home. And we have the uh, first responder network. So all of our first responders, we provide that wireless network for their connectivity as well. So Dean James, I wanna actually give you the same questions as well. I mean, many of us here have been paying attention because you know, whether or not we were coming back to campus or um, how we were dialing into our classes or not uh, has certainly been at the forefront of our minds. If you had to summarize some of the major uh, steps that you think we've taken as Wharton to also ensure the safety and well-being of our constituents, which are students, you know, staff and faculty, and I'm sure many other people that I'm not mentioning, what would you say are some of the major opportunities that we've undertaken and how do you feel like that's gone? So one of the areas that was most critical, you know, stepping into the role when I did was we, there's another framework, but we, we needed to to have some galvanizing mechanism to make really hard decisions. And for me, the mechanism is let's understand what is core, what are the core principles associated with the Wharton School? And so much like what Mr. Anthony described, there were a set of principles that we communicated to our community that said, we will make decisions in accordance with these, with these principles. The first one, like with AT&T, is always around the safety and well-being of the community. And um, clearly there are more members of the student population than any other aspect of our local Wharton community. And so it's easy for that to take precedence, but we have to recognize that we also have a faculty and a staff who are also affected by the decisions that we make. And interestingly enough, and this gets to you know a really interesting topic around equity, the needs and desires and preferences of our students who are young, uh, largely less vulnerable to, to the um, effects of, of COVID uh, and have a sense of invincibility in many respects, their experience and preferences were very different from our faculty who are not as young, don't tell anyone I said that, um, who have a different set of responsibilities and commitments and fears and concerns, and yet we needed to coexist in an environment that allowed for us to maintain the health, the health and safety of, of a community with very different profiles, if you will. So, so that was important to us. We also needed to make sure, and this, you know, corresponding with the conversation with Mr. Anthony, uh, is how would we create access, regardless of what avenue we chose to pursue with our education in the fall and in the spring, there has to be some level of access and technology create, created an equally compelling and important part of our strategy. Uh, but we also recognize that we had students and we had faculty and staff who were all over the country and technology goes so far, but then you have to manage with time zone differences and, and all of that. 
And so trying to create equitable outcomes and solutions for everyone that we needed to serve was a big initial part of how we made it that, that we did. We didn't get it all right for sure, but um, I, we got more right than not if we had not had that kind of framework. I think it's interesting to see the parallels, right? I think sometimes and arguably whether this is real or not, people perceive a, such a substantial difference between academia and quote unquote, as they call it, the real world, right? But when it comes down to crisis, um, what I'm gathering uh, from your summaries of how your respective institutions manage it, it's, it's very, very similar approaches is, you know, protect the people and then figure out how do you um, accommodate the various needs of, of different stakeholder groups. And, and actually, that actually sounds like leadership to me. It sounds not just like yeah, while still delivering on the mission of the organization. Absolutely. Right? Just be about people, keeping people safe when we still have a responsibility to educate. It can't just be about keeping people safe when you still have an, op an obligation to provide the, the technological services to billions of people around the world. So managing both uh, is part of the task. Yeah, absolutely. I want to um, add in a, a second, because there's definitely more than one crisis occurring in our world right now. But I think um, the one that many of the students who are taking this course are thinking about most is the crisis around racial injustice, um, not just in the U.S. and around the world. And we've been spending, I think, a lot of time um, in our respective communities considering what does this mean to us? Does this mean anything to us? You know, George Floyd, is he just a symbol of a long-standing problem or and what place does that have in our conversations about um, diversity, equity, inclusion in organizations, academic institutions. That all said, certainly efforts to end systemic racism, including the broader Black Lives Matter movement, has been at the top of many agendas in both industry and academia. I'm sure the two of you have had no shortage of conversations with many different people around this topic and, and what is systemic racism and how do we actually make that, how do we actually change things? Um, I, I wanna make this personal for just a moment, if I may, and I, I wanna understand as humans, as people of color, um, as leaders, how has this heightened focus on systemic racism and racial justice affected you personally? And then we'll talk about your organizations. Who would you like to go first? <laughs> uh, sure. DJ can actually go first, that's fine. So, you know, as, as, a, as a black woman, as a wife, as a mother, um, of, of course this deeply affected me. So uh, my kids for the past six years have been living in a rather affluent neighborhood in Atlanta. And I remember when we moved there in 2014, I said to my husband, we need to take our son, who at the time was maybe 13, and introduce him to all the neighbors within a walking distance, because I need for them to understand that he lives here, that he belongs in this neighborhood. And when you see him, he is not a threat. And I, I sometimes still get emotional thinking about the need to have have to do that. 
we work really hard to achieve and to succeed and to contribute to society through the work that we do. And the payback is having to worry about uh, the neighborhood that you live in and that you're, someone will see your son as a threat. And it's really unfortunate. And so the reminder of that for me, the reality of that for me when Mr. Floyd was killed this summer, it just was like another punch in the stomach. And yet at the same time, just before Mr. Floyd's murder, maybe two or three months, I was appointed as Dean of the Wharton School. And juxtaposing those two realities, that someone like me could be in this position and yet have someone like Mr. Floyd murdered needlessly. It, it's like, I, I still have a hard time reconciling um, those two realities and sitting with the advantage that I have on one on one hand and the the fear that I still have on another. And it's it's just, it's hard. Corey, how about you? How, how has this affected you personally? Yeah, so in, in many of the shared experiences with Dean James, right? I have a, a couple of high school age kids, a son who's a senior and a daughter who's a sophomore in high school. Um, and so it's interesting, Dean James, We, my wife and I did the same thing when we were in San Francisco Bay Area, we moved to Dallas, um, you know, just to make sure the neighbors knew us, knew the kids to your point. Um, so that when you see him hanging out, uh, you know, as he often does with his hoodie on, with his earbuds in and, you know, doing his thing that um, you're not concerned about that. Um, for me, Professor Curry, it, it, it impacted me from a number of perspectives. Keep in mind, not only personally, just as a black man, um, but also it's a huge part of my job. So, so when that happened, I was dealing with it personally. Right. And then also professionally, I was trying to help a quarter of a million employees at AT&T figure out um, how to navigate what's going on and how do we deal with it as well. And so what it um, what it sort of uncovered for me were a couple of things. One, I didn't realize how numb I had become to these incidents. Right. Because it, it just unfortunately, we've experienced so many of them. That there was some level of numbness when I when you, I saw that one, I'm thinking, you know, it's another one. Here we go again. And then that translated, and this part was problematic for me. I really had to step back and, and check myself because it ended up trans, translating um, into frustration for me. Because there was a part of me saying, "Why is you know we're getting this reaction, which was warranted, because that was horrible." But there was a part of me saying, like, where in the hell has everybody been for the last 30, 40, 50 years? This isn't new. And we could go down a long list, unfortunately, of George Floyd-like incidents. It wasn't even the first one we caught on tape. It was So part of me was frustrated about that. It's like, why all of a sudden now everybody wants to pay attention? But I had to step back because, one, that was me being judgmental. Really, when you think about it, that is me being judgmental. And then two, recognizing that, hey, man, every one of us is probably on different places along the spectrum. And so a lot of folks just simply were not aware. The level of awareness was not there. Now, we could argue all day whether that was because they chose to ignore what had been happening, but I don't even burn calories 
in that space. And so I had to step back and I told our teams and I told AT&T. So it's happened. We're not going to spend time trying to figure out why this is resonating the way that it is and why we're all just starting to pay attention to it. But we're going to embrace the fact that everybody is paying attention. And so we're going to use this as an opportunity to learn from it so that we can try and avoid another George Floyd-like incident. And so try and turn that into positive energy. And so that's what I've been focused on. Uh, you know, after I gave myself about, you know, two hours to be angry and frustrated for a while, then to say, hey, man, I have to go do something positive here for not only my family and myself, but for our business. You're definitely more resilient, the two of you, than I was. I remember, and I just looked at my calendar. So this was May 25th, Memorial Day. And I remembered that I hadn't even heard about the racist incident in Central Park yet. I was still processing um, you know, George Floyd's murder. And I just remember feeling terrible the whole week. I was working on a research project where I had all these calls lined up with corporate people who I was trying to convince to participate in my survey. And just one by one, everybody who I talked to, and they were mostly the people where I was talking to were people of color because they hold a lot of these chief diversity officer positions. And everybody just looked tired and exhausted. And I remember I took Friday off because I just felt like I needed a nap. But all of a sudden, come Monday, which was what, June 1st or 2nd, it's like, I can't tell you how many emails were in my box with these same people who were looking ragged the week before saying, what can we do? Can you help us? We need help. Like, let's do this. Can we participate in your survey? It was just the amount of energy that people were able to drum up and, 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 and rally into a place of productivity since that first week in June after I, I would say a, a week of mourning has just been um, has just been very inspiring. I will say that I do get into this place that I'm like, mm, where were you? <laughs> right. This is not new. And then I try not to judge, um, but I'm still judging a little bit. In any case, I want to talk a little bit about your individual organizations, obviously Dean James, uh, Wharton School, and Corey AT&T. Um, what, what impact have you seen these, uh, obviously the focus on systemic racism um, having on your organizations? Like what are people, do you see the same rallying and energy and creation of initiatives and programs? Um, and, and what are some of those that you've seen that have happened um, since June as people have had extra energy around this topic? Uh, Corey, do you want to start? Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I would say, look, Professor Curry, I am, I am a hip hop head, right? I absolutely love hip hop, and and this is a saying that we have in hip hop um, that hey, uh, we're not new to this, we're true to this, and 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 I literally would say this at AT and T. I've been saying this for some time, and so for us, the good news is we have been doing this work. I mean, we, this year we literally celebrated the fifty second anniversary of our employee resource group that focuses on the interests of black employees. So we, we've been doing this work for a very long time. What happened after George Floyd is the level of awareness increased exponentially. It was really fascinating around these issues and how race colors, how we all interact with each other. It was almost as if it happened overnight. You know, it went from a seven to a 10. Right. I mean, in the level of awareness raised really, really quickly. And so we said, hey, let's harness this. We're in this moment where we have an opportunity to increase this level of awareness amongst our own employee base. So let's harness it. So the first thing we did um, 
was like Dean James mentioned a little earlier, we went on our own version of a listening tour. So myself and our CEO and chairman, I mean, we, we spent time, right? We were in sort of triage mode because we quickly realized that this incident obviously was having tremendous impacts on the black experience in our company. But we quickly realized it was all of our employees, not just black employees that were really grappling with how to make sense of what they just saw happen on their screen for almost nine minutes. And so we said, hey, let's go listen. Let's just go listen, be in, you know, in receipt mode, not transmit mode. So we did that for a while. Then we said, okay, now it's time to translate what we heard into tangible actions to drive positive impact in this business. And so we stood up resources first. We call it listen, understand, act is the construct in which we wanted to do this work. So we created a site or sort of this repository, if you will, of all of these resources and all different modalities, right? You can, from podcasts to books, to movies, to articles, et cetera, that people can engage in self-paced so that they could just learn. Then we said, hey, now is the time for us to be even more transparent in our company about our path forward. So for the first time, we shared the demographic makeup of our business from C-suite to frontline employee in detail. Right. And then laid out here's here where our opportunities are. And these are the actions we're going to take to address those opportunities. So we said, first, we got to take care of our own house. So let's double down on the work that we're doing internally. Let's accelerate. It. Then we we articulated. Here's what we are going to do externally. And this is how we're going to address these acute needs in the communities of color and in underserved communities and how we're going to double down and continue and improve the investment levels in those communities, et cetera. And so we've been doing that. And then the third thing we said is, hey, we're going to require now, there will be a mandatory learning experience for all 238,000 employees at AT&T on these issues around systemic bias and how race impacts how we interact with each other. And my, I also happen to have the, the training organization for our company. And so that's, that's mine as well. And so we're close to rolling that out here in a few weeks, and we're going to do that. And then the last thing I'll point out, and this is a really good wrapper on all of this work, is we said, hey, we are going to increase or improve, I should say, the level of accountability in our business to deliver on all of these things we just said that we're going to do. Starting at our CEO and board on down, accountability. We have to be really clear and articulate about this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And damn it, this was how we're going to hold ourselves accountable for you. So just a follow-up question here. I was going to ask you about accountability if you didn't get to it. Um, but carrots or sticks? We've been talking about that in class. We mentioned it once. Carrots means incentives. Sticks means penalties. What approaches are you all taking to keep people accountable? to making action on all or taking action and making progress on uh, these broad initiatives. So I was telling some of your class a little earlier, um, I'll push back on the premise um, because I always try and avoid binary thinking wherever <laughs> possible. And that's part of my messaging at AT&T. So I don't think of it as a carrot or a stick. I think of it as a carrot that sometimes I use as a stick. So, <laughs> so you know, look, we, that's how we approach it. We're going to create incentives for sure, right? For you um, for, as a leader in this business to do exactly what we say we were going to do. Um, but there is very, very clear expectation that if you don't meet those expectations, 
then you will be held accountable. So that's everything from your performance. And we we shared this, by the way, with the entire company. So we literally said it. Our CEO, John Stanky, put it in a note. I put it in a note where we're going to hold every leader accountable, number one, starting with their performance evaluation. So it now is a structured part of their evaluation of their performance. Just like all other business metrics and everything else, we deem, um, you know, uh, an imperative for us to be successful as a company. And so when you now make it a structured part of a person's performance evaluation, we all know what comes next, i.e. it impacts your back pocket. So your compensation and how you are treated, right, in terms of bonus and whether or not you're eligible for uh, base compensation acceleration, all of that is now reflected in how you perform against the plans that we said every single leader has to develop for their respective organization. This was not going to be an effort that I, as the chief diversity officer, walks out and drops on your desk and say, hey, here's your plan. This is how you're going to go execute and improve. No, I don't do that on all the other business issues that are an imperative for you. You're going to figure it out for your organization. We're going to agree to it. So we're going to look at that and make sure that I agree with it, our CEO agrees with it, and then you're going to go execute. But you're going to create it. So that way you're never going to be able to come back to me and say, well, no, I didn't accomplish that, Corey, but hell, that was your plan, not mine. No, this was your commitment. This is your plan. And oh, by the way, you're going to share that with your organization because transparency is the other way, Professor Curry, that we're driving that accountability. The whole world sees it. Your whole organization sees it. So the next town hall meeting you have, everybody's in the audience raising their hands and say, Corey, I saw you only had 32% of your senior leadership team was women. And now six months later, and that number is 28. Right? Transparency. Okay. We'll be we'll be watching for the increasing transparency around this. Dean James, uh, so honestly, I was one of the faculty, as I'm sure there were many, who when um, after George Floyd was murdered, and I thought about what that meant for our community, I was one of the people who rallied in the second week um, and started sending emails to um, Dean Garrett, our, our former dean. Um, with the understanding that we needed to say something or do something. And I was so afraid, as many of our members were, that we were going to be silent. And I think for me, I was afraid that um, it's a long time from June until October 26th, which is the day that my diversity course starts. My biggest fear was that we were going to do nothing and that I was going to inherit um, everybody's pain and need to make sense. So fortunately, that's not what happened, but I do know that in these communications, um, your chief of staff probably sent the memo to you that I was extra concerned um, that we need to do something. And I'm sure you'd gotten other communications from other people. And so can you help us to understand um, what have you seen have been some of the initiatives that we've embarked on as a school, but also individual initiatives that maybe people who we don't always see because they're not uh, necessarily promoted in quite the same way. What what have we been doing um, in this regard to address uh, the issues of systemic racism? So I I don't yet have the tenure that Mr. Anthony has with AT and T. So I have four and a half months experience with the Wharton School, and I am still learning and and understanding where Wharton is on its evolution with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there have been some wonderful and pleasant surprises in the four and a half months that I've been here. 
One of which I learned just recently that this year in our MBA class, we have the highest percentage of domestic African-American students we've ever had. And I think perhaps the highest in, among any business school at 17%, which means those decisions were not made after July 1st. Those decisions were made last academic year, which meant before my appointment as dean, there were people already thinking and committed to uh, enhancing the diversity among the student population. So, so I think that's, that's a good and pleasant surprise. Um, another interesting observation is, and conclusion I will say is, again, I had a stereotype about the Wharton School that it was perhaps not as sensitive to these matters, uh, and, and maybe there in the past there has been some truth to that. And determining the reasoning for that, I mean, anyone could speculate from, you know, they just, you know, the faculty and staff don't care about race issues and, and Black students, or they don't know what to do about race and Black issues. Like, there are all sorts of rationalizations we can make around the stereotype that perhaps Wharton was less sensitive. Um, what I have found is that there are a lot of people who really care about these matters, but needed a space to be able to show and demonstrate without fear um, that they cared. So in the past month, the number of faculty who have shared with me uh, work that they are doing either in their scholarship, and these are not black faculty, right. white faculty who are doing scholarship connected to some aspect of equity or inequity has been astounding to me. The number of faculty who have modified or created new course content connected to race and equity. I had a faculty member last week send me probably a hundred, a hundred page slide deck of two classes that he has created around race. Uh, and and I, you don't just create that on a dime. You don't just create that because you have a new dean. I think that people fundamentally always had a, a, a desire to be able to have these conversations, be able to engage uh, in these discussions that are hard and, and uh, threatening in some respects. But they didn't have, an, I, I think they didn't feel like we were a safe place for that to happen. And so they kept it hidden. And now, because I've been so open and candid about, at least I've tried to be, I hope that's the perception, about um, needing to talk about these issues and putting them out there on the surface, even if we don't get it right, just exposing people to conversations and dialogue around race and diversity across all sorts of identity characteristics. I think, I think we're seeing people who've had it in their heart and in their expertise, feeling more com comfortable bringing that out to the to the present. So that's something that I want to build on and expand and support and reinforce. So you talk about carrots and sticks. I tend to believe I like the, you know, not being so binary, but I, I tend to believe you, you know, the saying you track fees with honey. And there are ways that we can uh, reward and incentivize our faculty and staff to do more of the work that I'm starting to see already happen. And just one very specific example is every year faculty you know, do a, 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 an accounting of how they spent their time. What were the activities that they did over the previous year? Stephanie, you know what I'm talking about. We're in discussion about adding a category or a question that says, what activities have you done connected to creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment at the Wharton School? So that would be, speaking to accountability, that would be a metric that we could use to see um, 
what kinds of changes and enhancements that we're making in this regard at Warden over the next several years. Yeah, I totally agree. I'll start with your last point was I think when I filled out my last year's, um, you know, account, accounting for all the work that I did, I believe I made a suggestion that we needed like another category. It felt like the categories that we had wouldn't capture the full range of people who actually do take on diversity, equity, inclusion work. Do um, So I think that that is would be a wonderful, a wonderful addition um, to actually you know, the students for today read my merit framework that I published in Knowledge at Wharton. And, and the premise of that framework is this idea that if we want diversity work to work, we need to count it as real work, right? It needs to be seen. And, and Corey, you talked about it being part of the performance evaluation. And we know oftentimes this work goes invisible. Obviously, my my job as, as a professor includes service work, but even within the category of service work, how we think about what's really service. So am I on a committee versus am I doing all this stuff that nobody sees? There's different value attached to it. Yeah. And, and what service is valued? Valued, what service is valued. So I, I think I wrote something like that. So I'm happy to hear that development. I also want to acknowledge that when I came here three years ago, I had very much the same impression that you didn't actually started with my recruiting process where my faculty, um, you know, were saying to me, I was, my job interview was um, a month after the last presidential election. So things were really tenuous in America as they are now, and they were really tenuous on campus. And um, I was under the impression that they wanted to not only recruit faculty who were experts in diversity because of the research, and that's part of our mission, but they also wanted somebody to teach a diversity class. And I was a little nervous about doing that at the Wharton School. I'm not going to lie to you, and I don't lie to my students in this because I wasn't sure if we were ready. But what happened over the next three years is I saw very quickly, Dean James, the same people who you saw, all of these people coming out of the woodworks, secretively, you know, reaching out to me and wanting to do this work. But I almost felt like at the time, it felt like they felt like they needed permission. Um, and maybe what you've captured is, is the, the, the fear around um, sometimes I think it's the fear of failure, but it's also the, am I the right person? Because many of these people are white, right? And so there's this understanding that it, it can I, as a white person, effectively um, teach a class on race, even if it's one section or lead a race initiative. So I'm very um, excited that you saw that as well. And I'm also very excited that some of these same faculty are actually just going for it and, and doing these, doing this work. So there's actually a question from the audience that relates to this. Um, and I'm sure this is a question that the two of you have, have answered um, at, at some point in your career. Um, and it certainly is this notion of, um, you know, oftentimes we there's some expectation um, that people who are leading race work or diversity work are people of color. But what we know to be true is there are a lot of people who are white who are very much interested in doing this work. Um, uh, Dean James and I had a, a dialogue in a, in a previous panel last week about the fact that so many of the students who take my class are not people of color, by the way. I have a lot of white students in my class who are just trying to figure out um, what they can do to be really at the forefront as a change agent. So the question here is, um, you know, to some extent there's the impression that, um, you know, black, indigenous, and people of color um, they're in a position to try to entice or motivate white people to care about racial equity. We know sometimes that is the case, is that it feels like we're, uh, as people of color, we're really 
I'm in a position to try to get white people to care. In the same respect, I think Dean James and I are talking about a scenario in which there are white people who care, who are really trying to figure out how to create their place in this conversation. And so let's talk about the other group, the ones who are less likely to step up. What have been some strategies, and I'll, I'll take this to you, Corey, what have been some strategies that you've seen have been effective and maybe those who the, who aren't raising their hands, and I, the question is specifically about white people. Um, how how is it that this? What are the steps that you're taking, or AT and T? Um, what steps are you taking to to get white people to care about racial equity in predominantly white institutions? Yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. And when I think of that question, I don't narrow it or confine it to getting white people to care about these things, right? Um, it's every employee in this company. Obviously, it looks and feels differently depending on how you identify and what experiences you bring to the table. What the most effective way we found um, is a couple of things. Number one, help everyone understand in this company, right? Uh, from our board, I spend a lot of time with our board to frontline employees that we cannot be successful as a business without having a diverse workforce in an inclusive work environment period you, you you can't succeed so it has to be tied to business it has to be a business imperative and you have to do a good job of directly connecting business outcomes to the outcomes associated with this work and so that's number one we can't succeed so at AT&T we literally believe that look we will not be as successful as we need to be for our owners for all of our stakeholders customers uh, employees etc if we don't do this really well. So that's that's number one, right? And then the other thing is, we are really clear about what the expectation is of you as a leader in our company. So it's non-negotiable. So you, you can't work at AT&T, especially if you're going to be leading at AT&T and you get to choose whether or not this is important to you. No, it's non-negotiable. This is an expectation no different than the expectation we have of how you're going to treat our customers. You can't work here if customer experience is not a top priority. You, We don't allow you to set that aside. No. So you can't set this aside. So it's not optional. And so it's old saying one of my mentors used to tell me all the time when I was leading the operations teams that you referred to earlier, he used to tell me all the time, hey, Corey, sometimes to change people, you have to change people. Meaning there are some folks, there is a certain limit, right, that you will invest time and energy trying to help them understand and get on board. And then as a leader, you have to make the decision that, you know what, Corey's not going to get there. So now it's time to change people, literally meaning Corey's out, someone else is in. So I mean, you have to be that intentional about this work and your organization has to believe this trust is what Dean James talked about earlier. The organization has to trust that you're going to follow through on that. So when you have a leader out there in your organization and people bring it to your attention that, hey, Corey, this person is not on board with that, right? They're not leading in that way. Then the whole organization is looking to see what you're going to do about it. And if you don't address that in a meaningful way, you absolutely will lose the trust from the rest of the organization that you really mean what you're saying. When they see you do address it, then you build credibility and trust with that team. So that's how we do it, Professor Curry. Yeah. Dean James, do you have a perspective on this? I, and obviously, in addition to being the Dean of the Wharton School, you're also a, a world-renowned expert on diversity, equity, inclusion in organizations. And so to the extent that you have seen or wrestled with this with some of the organizations with which you 
consulted, happy to hear what you've seen them do. And I think the, the spirit of the question is, there are people who don't, who aren't bought in uh, to talking about racial equity or diversity, equity, inclusion. How do you, um, how do you gain further buy-in from those who are maybe um, a little less willing to dive right in and, and be a champion for this work? So on the one hand, I think we have to meet people where they are and everyone is at a different stage of their knowledge, understanding, care and concern with matters of diversity, equity and inclusion. So I don't believe that people who are at a more nascent stage are irredeemable and, and not important and that they can't continue to add value. But I do think it's how do we how do we connect with them in a way at that stage where they are and engage just productively and, and positively. And unless, especially in higher education, with especially among our faculty, they're, they're tenured. You, you don't just get rid of faculty because they don't behave. Um, <laughs> you, it, it is about building this sensibility of, you know, understanding why they are the way they are, what does motivate them. And then I think another part of this is, is what's the critical, when and at what point do you reach a critical mass in the organization of people who do actually care? And once you reach that critical mass, then here goes another framework for our students. This notion um, steps in and in the organizational behavior literature, it was called the attraction selection attrition model, right? People pick organizations because there's some affiliation and some core set of values that they believe in and want to be a part of. So they're attracted to companies that value the same things that they do. And when the company shifts and say, puts more of an emphasis on something like diversity, if that's not a value, they are less likely to want to stay in that organization and oftentimes will leave because it becomes an uncomfortable place for them because it's just not something that, that they matter, so, that matters to them. So, so part of it is, yes, there's some cultural work that we can do to engage people on this matter wherever they are on the spectrum. But then the other part of it is at some point, people may work themselves out of the organization because it fundamentally is un an uncomfortable place for them to be. And we don't have to do a lot in that regard. People self-select in and they self-select out. So uh, very, um, I think something too, let me, let me be clear because I don't want to mislead the students. When, when I talk about us, when I say it's non-negotiable, it's this, it's this value of treating everyone in an equitable way valuing what everyone brings to the table right that part is non-negotiable what is negotiable and we're 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 being reminding of this as we're rolling out this learning experience is sort of the language we all use as an example when we have these conversations so at AT&T there is no there is no mandate that says hey you have to believe in this notion of white privilege you have to believe in this notion of systemic racism. We're not saying that, All right? That's debatable. You, you feel how you want to feel about that, right? Um, we're not saying that. What we are saying is non-negotiable is you're not going to treat Corey any differently because he identifies as black than you do any mm -hmm. other employee. That you can't do. That part is non-negotiable. Now, whether or not you think, uh, you know, black lives matter, we should or should not support, hey, you're entitled to your opinion with that. I don't have an issue with that. So I just want to be clear because some people misunderstand that to say, hey, we have to accept, you know, 
are you saying, Corey, then every employee has to accept all of this other dogma that comes with that? And we're saying, no, 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 not that. We're talking about your actions and how you engage and interact with other employees. Thank you for that clarification. That was definitely helpful to understand a little bit more about where you're coming from on this. Um, so this is a related question. And, you know, I've thought about this often myself. Um, so I previously mentioned during our conversation today that so many of the diversity leaders with whom I interact are, are people of color, mostly black and mostly black women. That's, I don't know how representative that is of the pool, but I, just, I will just say anecdotally based on my own experience, mostly black people. And as I thought about what happened in many of these companies I was talking to this summer, um, these leaders were telling me that their black employees were feeling the burden, i.e. the quote unquote black tax of having to simultaneously um, deal with the pain of another murder of another black person, but also having to help with the sense-making process in their organization. So here's, here's the question for both of you from the students. Um, how do you not do that, right? How do you help other people along, get buy-in, if you will, if we're still talking about getting buy-in for people who maybe aren't as bought into these initiatives without placing further burden on the communities who feel most affected and always feel like they need to be educating other people? So what's your what's your response to that? And uh, Dean James, would you like to start? Sure, although I don't know that I have a good response because it's just so ingrained that I, I remember after George Floyd's murder, the number of email messages, letters, phone calls that I got from people from my past, white men in particular, who wanted to reach out and say, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, I had no idea. Uh, this is terrible. How are you feeling? And I so appreciated their genuine care and concern, but it was also as if there was an expectation that I could help them um, not just feel better, but but to know what to do. And I think you talked about that yourself with the request for your scholarship to inform strategies that companies could could do around these matters. So that's that's going to happen, and I don't know how you prevent that from happening, other than augment that by giving people additional um, resources and information that they can use to self-educate. That doesn't necessarily include, uh, you know, your 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 black colleague down the hall. So, or I guess on the next Zoom call these days, um, <laughs> but. Um, and I think at some point we have our own threshold of how much we're willing to, um, how much of that burden we're willing to take. And I, there was a time of the summer where I was tapped out. I didn't have any more energy to give to that matter. But then time passes and you recognize, at least in my case, how important this was and what a moment in time there, there was to educate. And so you you fill the reserve and you you start over as, as appropriate. And what I fear most honestly, is that we will, this moment will pass and that people stop asking questions, that people stop caring, that people stop paying attention to these issues. So while we have seemingly the world's attention, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to try to provide as many resources and education and conversations as possible to answer the questions that people don't know where else to go. Corey, what's your perspective on this topic? Yeah, I think Dean James is spot on. Look, 
what I was able to do, and I know this won't necessarily be an option for many of the folks listening, but in trying to manage that load, because it, it becomes a load and it is very exhausting. But what I did is say, hey, let me be proactive here. Um, it's one of the advantages of, of, of being a chief diversity officer. So I said, hey, I can just, I'll have a company-wide call. So I, you know, I, I had a call company-wide, grabbed my CEO, and then we answered those questions from the audience and had the conversation with, you know, thousands at one time. And so that that went a long way in sort of mitigating the need from so many other folks individually to reach out. At least that's what I thought. So even after that, you know, I still had a ton of people reaching out. But I think Dean James is right. It's a personal thing, right? You, you set your boundaries. You know how you have to manage it. But I tried to have as many group conversations about it as possible so that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have to field all of those questions by myself multiple times. And then two, and this is really important, that we don't keep asking the same, you know, black employees or if it's, uh, you know, issue with LGBTQ, the same, you can't keep asking the same folks from the segment to come represent this issue. And so what I started doing is saying, hey, as opposed to calling that person, before you call them, what have you done to try and educate yourself first? Right? Would it, and you'd be surprised how that cuts down on a whole lot of reach outs to say, hey, what have you done first? You don't have to just call Dean James and ask her, you know, what should you do next and how should you have this conversation? There is a ton of resources out there. Go and try and answer that question for yourself first. And then you can call Dean James and, and it's probably a much more productive conversation. I think about this so earlier today, there's this um, other institution who had reached out to me because they need some help. Um, and there's always this plate thing around, you know, I'm at my own institution and I'm sort of trying to field everybody's um, requests and it's very hard and there are a lot of them. And so sometimes my reply is you need to hire an external person. But it's funny because some of these schools are going and looking for an academic at another institution, right? Which I think is an interesting strategy. So as this one institution contacted me today, I actually said to them, who else have you talked to in your institution and have they told you no? Because what I have learned is sometimes people don't want somebody from another institution coming in there, like academia and, and messing with their school. So there is somebody at this institution who I know very well. I said, go and talk to him, tell him you called me. I gave them a list of things that they could ask him, which were within this scope of um, that they had done some homework. Now their homework was interviewing me um, so that they can ask him, you know, if he wants to support them in what they're doing, because they're trying to do something to improve you know, equity for faculty, staff, and students. So it's the big thing. Um, and let him be the one to tell them, you know, go find a corporate consultant or something, not another academic. So I found that be, to be an interesting strategy that academia is taking, is they're looking for another academic, but uh, not fully understanding that we're already swamped in telling a lot of people at our own schools, no, it's kind of hard to take on another school's stuff on top of our own. <laughs> it's a very interesting perspective. I want to, um, Dean James, you had started to get at this. Um, and uh, so we're all feeling like this is a moment. It's important to seize the moment, take advantage of the moment, but we're all hoping that this is not a moment. 
as this will be a movement and that there will be momentum. But obviously, with the reality check that this is not the first time that the U.S. nor the world has reckoned with racial inequity, there's this understanding that momentum may die down. I myself started feeling like that momentum started to die down a little bit in October. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it today, but the question is, is how do you think for the, both of you, how do you think you can encourage dialogue in your respective organizations after the overall momentum dies down? So Corey, would you like to go first? Or Dean James, you were looking like you wanted to speak, either one. I, I would just say, I think part of what we're dealing with at this moment is uh, not just the realities around racial reckoning in the United States, but also the pandemic. And both of them are exhausting. Mm -hmm. And we only have so much in our reserves to be able to continue down this path where it just feels like everything is taking all that we have to, to live in this society right now. So uh, I'm actually hopeful that while we may in the next several months see a quietening around uh, matters associated with racial justice, I don't think it's because people stopped caring. I think it's because people are exhausted uh, taking on two significant crises. And that if organizations can do just enough to keep it at the threshold, once things revert and we've got the virus under control, that uh, we can springboard back that energy around matters of race at a point in time where people have more fortitude to, to deal with it. Right now, I think it's really hard to conjure up the fortitude that's, that's required around something as hard as race and racial justice, while they're also dealing with all of the impacts associated with the pandemic. So that's how I'm thinking about it now. Corey? Yeah, a couple of things. So I think you're right around this moment versus movement and the difference between those two. And it's a question I always ask of the business and of individuals. What's your sacrifice? That's the difference between something being a moment and something being a movement is sacrifice. If you cannot identify as an organization, if you cannot identify as an individual, the sacrifices you have made, then you're likely to be in a moment. And it's probably not going to be a movement, right? The second thing is, will you, we have to be realistic. What happened this summer, and in May and June and July, and, and, and we were, the nation was responding to it, the world was in many ways, that was very emotional. Right, we were, I mean, it was an emotional experience for us and we were um, all had different emotions, but it was very emotional experience. What you have to get to as an organization is how do you translate that emotion to commitment? And as an organization, that commitment is reflected by process. Reflected by process. So you go from the emotion of just being, you know, horribly appalled, et cetera, et cetera, when you saw it. Then you say, okay, we're gonna commit to making a change. And where many organizations, they stop there. And then fast forward three months, six months, you haven't done anything. When you, have, when you say I'm making the commitment, then you have to put the structure and the process into place to go operationalize. And that's how it maintains itself. So, cause the emotions are going to subside. That's part of the human condition. 
and it's a good thing. We can't all operate at the level of emotion we had when we first saw that video. That wouldn't be productive. So the emotions will subside, but the commitment doesn't have to subside if you have the process and structure in your organization to operationalize what you committed to. That's how you make the impact. That's how you change it. And we have so many lessons, right, in our past on how you do that, from the civil rights movement to the women's suffrage movement, you name it. There are so many examples of how you do it, but there is commonality across all of those. And it was process and structure on how to operationalize the commitment. That's how you do it. All right, final question. We're at our final few minutes here. And uh, you know, we think about this as the future is bright. When I step in, step into my virtual Zoom classroom, I get very inspired by the fact that all these students have decided, and it's an elective course, meaning they willingly decided to be there. I have, you know, from semester to quarter to quarter, I have anywhere between 140 and 160 students who want to talk about this topic, which I think is unbelievable for the Wharton School. And and so all these students at Wharton, and certainly a lot of students are from UPenn as well, uh, my undergrad, they are very, very, very eager to be change agents in their internships and their future work roles. Um, what's your advice for them as they try to figure out their place and their voice in this conversation as people who are new to organizations and they're not really in charge of the strategy? So I would start by saying, you have choice in the decisions that you make in terms of where you will provide your professional gifts, right? And it will be a much easier road if, in fact, you choose companies that are already aligned with the values that you have. As a new young entrant to an organization, if you think that you can go in and by sheer willpower change an organization who has not been open and receptive to matters of diversity and, and you will be that change agent, it's, it's likely not gonna happen and you'll be very frustrated. But going into an organization that has already demonstrated a set of values that you align yourself with makes it easier for you to have that join a critical mass of people who can continue and elevate that, that work at the outset new in, in one's career. So I think choosing where you provide your professional gifts is as important as, any, as anything. Corey. I agree. I agree. I'm, you know, I'm from the South and in Southern black churches, when we hear something we really like, we say, amen. <laughs> and, and, and so let me start by saying, amen. Um, here, here's the other thing I would offer to your students. And this has been interesting to me. It's a little fascinating. Um, cause as you pointed out, I grew up in our business, right? On the operations side. So I'm an operations guy, technologist. And I have found when I moved into this role, and interacting with the practitioners, as I call them lovingly, folks who've been doing, you know, performing these roles for some time and then just the DNI space, we tend to be, we can be very intolerant. We can be very intolerant. And, and so what I would offer to your students, this is, I believe, the absolute best thing you can do if you really want to drive impact here. First thing you can do is step outside of your echo chamber. Get outside of your echo chamber. And what I mean by that is quit consuming information and perspectives from sources that already think, feel, and believe how you think, feel, and believe. Stop doing that. That is toxic. 
And we see the implications of that in every institution in this country, from our political institutions to education, the corporate, you name it. Get outside of your echo chambers. And you just by doing that, and it's not simple, I'll tell you up front, it can be painful at times when you are hearing a perspective that is, you know, 180 degrees from yours and you are so passionate about your perspective and you have convinced yourself that it is the only right way. And so when you hear that other perspective, it's going to hurt initially. But trust me, it will help you be a better leader and it will help you address these issues of DEI in a much more effective way because you will have empathy for folks not like yourself. And you cannot lead effectively in any organization or capacity if you don't have empathy. And, get, and you cannot develop the right level of empathy if you are in a echo chamber. It's problematic. I think I would argue is one of the most problematic things in our country. But you all are able, you're hearing it now, Stop doing it if you are doing it. If you're already outside of your echo chamber, hey, congratulations, Professor Creer will give you some bonus points. You'll get a, some extra points here for the semester. But seriously, that's what I would offer is step outside the echo chambers, avoid the binary thinking. And if you do that, I think we're all in a better place. And I'm sorry, may I just add one very quick thing? Absolutely. Point, you really have to demonstrate excellence in the core of what the business does mm -hmm. before you earn the right to be a change agent on these other matters. Excellence in the core of what the business does before you earn the right to become a change agent on these other matters. So I think that's where I'm going to share my amen um, as well. And I'm going to say thank you so much, Dean James and Corey Anthony, for being here. This was, uh, you know, I learn a lot um, from these experiences, and I'm sure that the students have as well. Um, thank you for taking the time out, and, and thank you for the great work that you are both doing as you are trying to manage multiple crises, pandemics, issues, large-scale issues. Um, I think it means a lot that you're still showing up um, and educating uh, those of us who are really trying to um, be supportive and helpful. Um, so thanks to all the students for joining um, and everyone have a good night. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.